over the last couple weeks, uh, we've been in this series, this uh, core value series, talking about the seven core values of uh, Fairlawn. And we've come now to the third one, and it is gospel-fueled prayer. And one of the reasons why um, we're preaching this series right now is, as as was already said earlier, we went through the Stratop process this past December, and really one of the things that came out of that was like, we need to... um, clarify our core values and really begin to build this church or continue to utilize this church and its ministries on the basis of having these core values laid as our foundation. Uh, And so we reworked them. Um, Really, none of them have really changed. We've just changed some of the phrasing in the values, and now we're trying to uh, open them up for you to give you a better sense of what we're founded on here at Fairlawn. And as I said, now we've come to gospel-fueled prayer. And the way I wanted to start this morning was just by asking why. Why is gospel-fueled prayer, or just prayer in general, a value of Fairlawn? I think author E.M. Bounds, who has spoken or written extensively on prayer, uh, clearly tells us why it should be a value of us as Fairlawn, a value of us as individual Christians, and really a value of all of God's people. And this is what he says. He says, success is sure to follow a church given to much prayer. The supernatural element in the church, without which it must fail, comes only through praying. The reason that prayer is a value at Fairlawn is simple. We will fail to accomplish our mission if we are not a people of prayer. Our mission here is to glorify God by equipping believers to advance the Gospel. We will fail if we are not regularly petitioning God to work in and through us to accomplish this mission. And if that's true, if if our success is dependent upon our prayer lives and petitioning God to help us, Why do we not pray more? Why are we as individual Christians and as a church not more dedicated to prayer? I think that there's a lot of reasons why individual Christians or a church at large struggles with being faithful in prayer. But I think one of the most important is that we often do not have a sustaining motivation to keep us faithful in prayer in every season of life. If you're like me, your prayer life probably goes something like this. When are we most passionate? When are we most frequent? When are we most faithful in our prayers? Well, it's when something has gone wrong in our lives. When we feel like we truly need God at some point. There's some physical ailment that comes over us or some spiritual struggle that we're going through and that really ramps up our prayer lives, right? We're in this season of need, as it were. But what often happens is once that goes away, our prayer lives go with it. When we leave that season of perceived need, we stop praying. And hear me, I'm not suggesting that it's a bad thing that you pray when you're going through a rough season in your life. But if that's the only season that you pray in, there's something wrong. And that's not good. And so what we need is a sustained motivation 
that can motivate us to continue to be faithful to God in every season of life as we come to Him in prayer. And that's where the Gospel comes in. The person and work of Jesus is the only thing that will motivate us to pray as God desires we would. And so my aim this morning is to show you how the Gospel, the person and work of Jesus, fuel or create a sustained motivation for your prayer life in every season. And I believe that if we understand how the Gospel fuels our prayer life and we allow it to do so, that we both individually and as a body will begin to embody this value more faithfully. We will begin to pray more faithfully in and out of season to God. And our mission is dependent upon it. We must be a people of prayer. So my aim this morning is to show how the truths of the Gospel fuel our prayer life and challenge our hearts to believe those truths. And the way this is going to unfold is first we're going to look at the foundation of our prayer life. The fact that our prayer life rests on our relationship with God. And we're going to start in the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 verse 9. And really the sermon just kind of springboards uh, from there. And that's what we'll start with uh, in, our, in our time of reading here. Um, but first we're going to look at the foundation of our prayer life. And then we're going to see how the Gospel actually brings us into the family of God and gives us a foundation by which we can go to God in prayer. And then lastly, we'll consider how the truth of the Gospel, the truth of our adoption into the family of God, what the Gospel implications are for our prayer life that should fuel us to be more faithful in prayer. So look with me at Matthew 6, verse 9. I'll read just verse 9, and then we will pray and ask God to come and help us. Jesus says, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Our Father, we come to You this morning acknowledging our need for Your help. And we ask that Your Spirit would come and tie together for us the Gospel to our prayer lives. So that we would be a people who are motivated in and out of season to come to You in prayer. That You might work through us to accomplish Your mission in this church and in our world. Come and help us now to this end, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. What is the foundation of your prayer life? Jesus tells us. How does He teach us to pray? What is the first thing He tells us? He tells us how to address God in prayer. He says, pray then like this, our Father. You see, what Jesus is doing is He's saying the very first thing you need to recognize when you go to God in prayer is what kind of relationship you have with Him. And this creates the foundation for the rest of your praying. 
What is the relationship that you have with God? What Jesus is telling us here by placing this first is that your prayer life rests on your relationship with God. If you want a quality prayer life, you must understand the type of relationship you have with Him. Now consequently, if you do not understand the type of relationship you have with God, your prayer life will suffer. It will be infrequent, boring, and burdensome. Now how is this so? How is it so that our understanding of our relationship with God affects our prayer life? Allow me to illustrate the connection here. Uh, Indulge me in raising your hands at these two questions if this applies to you. How many of you have ever asked something of the President of the United States? Not, not necessarily our current president, but any president. How many of you have ever written him a letter, tried to call him on the phone, tried to schedule a meeting with him to ask him for something? Show of hands. Okay, look around. I had one person in the first service. I don't know if they were telling the truth or not, but I had one person. So nobody, okay. All right. Let me ask you another question. How many of you have ever asked your dad for something? Your father? Show of hands. Okay, look around. Right? Probably all of us. Why is it that nearly none of you, not nearly none of you, have ever asked something of the president, but nearly all of you have asked something of your father? Well, it's because you have a drastically different relationship with the President of the United States than you do with your dad, right? Uh, My guess would be that we all understand the fact that the President does not have time to hear our requests, nor does he necessarily desire to answer our requests. We have no personal relationship with the President, so why would he care about us? Now, on the other hand, we know that most of the time, our Father will make time to hear us and desires to give us what we need. Why? Because we are His child and He loves us. We have a family relationship with Him. Now, Scripture tells us that God is our King. He is our Lord. He is our Master. He is our President if you will. And we ought to relate to Him as such. We as His servants. But Scripture also says that God is our Father and we ought to relate to Him as such. We as His children. Now the question that comes to us then is on which relational basis does Jesus teach us to pray? Pray then like this. Our Father. Now Jesus could have said, pray then like this, our Sovereign Lord and Master who is in the heavens, hallowed be Your name. And that would have been perfectly appropriate. But He didn't. Rather, He chooses to have us come to Him as a child would come to His or her Father. Pray then like this, our Father... This is a term of endearment. A term that tells us that God desires us to come to Him and encourages us to come to Him as freely as we would go to our own Father. 
Jesus is calling us to go to God. You see, if we approach God in prayer, primarily as our King and we as His servants, I believe that this will stifle our prayer life. But if we come to God understanding that He is our Father, this will fuel our prayer life. And we will get into how it does so in a moment. But to summarize, if you, have, if you want to have a quality prayer life, a prayer life that is marked by frequent, fervent, joyful prayer, you must understand and approach God as your Father. Now you may be thinking at this point, okay, that's clear enough, I got it. Our prayer life rests on our relating to God as our Father, but Kelsey, what does that have to do with the Gospel? Our value is, of course, Gospel-fueled prayer, right? Well, if you're thinking that, you need to understand that it has everything to do with the Gospel. My friends, you cannot come to God as your Father, nor is it appropriate that you do so without the Gospel. It is only through the person and work of Jesus Christ that it is even okay for you to go to God as Father. So let us now consider how the Gospel changes our relationship with God and gives us this family relationship with Him that lays at the foundation of our prayer life. How does the Gospel go about giving us a family relationship with God that we might come to Him as Father? Well, before we consider how we come into the family of God, let's consider that the the family that we were in prior to our conversion prior to our trusting in Jesus. As unbelievers, what is our status? Paul tells us quite clearly in Ephesians 2, verses 1-3, through speaking about unbelievers, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So here, Paul is speaking about believers, but he's talking about them before they had come to know Christ. He says, and you were these things. So in a state of unbelief, as unbelievers, as fallen people, we are all following the course of this world or willingly rebelling against our Creator. And listen to the language that Paul uses to describe our status. He says, you were sons of disobedience and children of wrath. Paul employs this language to categorize us in a family, not the family of God, but the family of darkness. And John in his first epistle in chapter 3 verse 10 tells us this clearly. He says, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So those who are not practicing righteousness, those who are rebelling against God, are in the family of the devil. The devil is their father, 
They are sons of disobedience and children of wrath. By nature, we are all born in sin, willfully rebelling against God and submitting to the devil as our father. Now, in connecting our status as unbelievers with our prayer life, how does God receive the prayers of unbelievers who are in the family of darkness? Two verses here, 1 Peter 3.12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, obviously, it says outright that the Lord's ears are open to the prayers of the righteous, and by implication, His ears are closed to the prayers of the wicked. He turns His face away from them. In John 9.31, we're told directly that God does not listen to sinners. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone who is a worshiper of God and does His will, God listens to him. So as unbelievers in the family of darkness, God, His ears are closed to our prayers. He does not listen to us. This is the status that we all once occupied. Children of the devil. Children in the family of darkness. But yet, Scripture speaks very clearly about when we come into uh, salvation, when we come to salvation, it uses the metaphor of becoming part of a new family. Having God now as our Father. Us becoming children of Him. And Paul speaks about this in Romans 8, chapter, or chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. He says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Paul shows us here that, by the, that the way in which we get brought out of the family of darkness into the family of God is by, is by means of adoption. By means of adoption. Listen to the language that he uses. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You have received the Spirit of adoption by whom we cry out to God, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. God takes us from the family of darkness with the devil as our father and moves us to the family of light. As God's children. Now, if at the thought of this, that you have been adopted into the family of God, that you are doubting its truth, that God not only would save a rebellious sinner like yourself, but that He would also adopt you into His family and treat you as a son or daughter, if you're doubting that this morning, you need to hear what Paul goes on to say. Listen closely. Paul not only tells us that we are children of God, but he assures us of this by speaking about our inheritance. Listen to what he says. He says, and if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God 
and fellow heirs with Christ. What we need to understand about this in terms of first century culture is when somebody was adopted into a new family, they become just as much a child as the biological child. And this is realized through the father allotting an inheritance to the child. And so what we see here is that we are fellow heirs with Christ, adopted into the family of God. But what does it mean to be a fellow heir with Christ? It means that what Jesus receives in His inheritance, you receive. And this testifies to the reality of your adoption. That you hold the status of son or daughter just as much as Jesus Himself does. That there are no second class children in the family of God. We hold the same status of son or daughter as Jesus does. Now, we have passed over something that we have to address at this point. How does one go from being in the family of darkness to being in the family of light? How does one go from having the devil as their father to having God as their father? How does one receive this spirit of adoption whereby we can come to God as Father? How does one come to possess this new status well it's through the gospel it's through the person and work of Jesus Christ through faith in him John 1 12 tells us this clearly but to all who did receive him that is speaking of Christ who received Christ who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God Now, I have no doubt that there are some people here who are living in the family of darkness, willfully rebelling against God, and you cannot come to God as your father, but only as judge. Do you feel the distance between yourself and God? Do you feel the weight of your sin? Do you know the sorrow that your rebellion has caused your Creator? Do you understand the separation that your sin has caused between you and Him? If you acknowledge this, that your rebellion has caused a separation between you and Him, that you can never bridge that gap, but yet you long to know Him as Father, I have good news for you. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came and took on flesh to live a perfect life that you could never live and die a substitutionary death in the place of sinners so that people like you and people like me could have God as their Father. And if you, this morning, acknowledge this, you acknowledge your sin and you acknowledge Jesus as the provision for you, if you place your faith in Him and turn away from your sin, you will become a child of God today. And I would plead with you to come to Jesus and to find refuge in Him. 
Now for those of you who are here and are Christians, but are not accustomed to approaching God in prayer as your Father, let this truth encourage you to come to Him. Let this reality that you have been adopted into His family spur you on to come to Him more faithfully in prayer, more freely in prayer. So our prayer life rests on our relationship with God and the Gospel brings us into a family relationship with God. And now let us consider how the Gospel fuels our prayer life. So on the basis of this truth, this Gospel truth that through Jesus you can be a child of God and now have this family relationship with Him, you as His son or daughter and He as your Father, because of this truth, there are five Gospel implications or things that will fuel us to go to God in prayer. Five things. First, because of your adoption, you have the ear of God. 1 Peter 3.12, we've been here before. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are open to their prayers. Those who are children of God have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus and therefore have the ear of the living God. Now this is in contrast to unbelievers who God does not listen to. But yet His children, His ears are open to them. The Gospel gives believers the undivided attention of the One who is infinitely more significant than the most significant person on earth. You think about that? You can't touch the President of the United States with a thousand foot pole. But through the Gospel, we have the ear of the living God. The undivided attention of God. So the first gospel implication is that because of your adoption into His family, you have the ear of God. Second, because of your adoption, God is concerned about what you need. Matthew 6, 31 and 32, Jesus says this, Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. Notice the connection here between our status as children of God and that directly impacting the way that God views us. It's because we are His children that He knows that we need them all and that He is concerned about giving us the things that we need. It is because our, we are His children and He loves us. It's because of our status as His children. Your heavenly Father knows you need them all. Because of the Gospel, the King of all is concerned for your needs. Third, because of the Gospel, because of your adoption, God longs to give you good gifts. Matthew 7.11, Jesus speaking again. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? 
Yet again, why does God desire to give good things to us? Because we are His children and He is our Father. Will not your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask Him? Because of the Gospel, the God of the universe desires to give good things to you. Not only are the ears of God open to your prayers, not only does He have this concern for you and the things that you need, but He longs to give you those things. Should this not motivate us, put a flame beneath us as we come to God in prayer? Should these things not fuel us to go to God in prayer more faithfully and more freely? If these things were not enough, still we have two more. Fourthly, because of your adoption, the Spirit of the living God indwells you and intercedes for you in your prayers. Romans 8.26 Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep. For words. I unfolded this text a couple of weeks ago as we were in our prayer series, but one thing I did not mention is how we come to possess the Spirit of the living God. It's through the Gospel. Through the Gospel, the Spirit of God has been made to dwell inside of you and helps you in your weakness as you pray. Fifthly, because of your adoption, God will always answer your prayers. Matthew 7, 7, Jesus speaking again. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Do you hear the promise there repeated three times? It will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. It is only through the person and work of Christ that this promise applies to us. If you are united to Christ by faith, when you pray, God has promised to move. Now, this does not mean that He will move in the way that we have prayed or that He will move in the way we think He should. But He promises that He will always move in the way that is best for us. Because of your adoption, you have the ear of God. God is concerned about what you need. He longs to give good things to you. He has made His Spirit to dwell inside of you to help you in your weakness. And He will always answer your prayers. This is what creates, this is gospel-fueled prayer. The gospel motivating us to pray in every season of life. This is the sustained motivation that we need to be faithful in prayer every day. How can we not go to God in prayer when we realize these things? And if we pray the way that Jesus taught us to pray, the Gospel will always be on our hearts and always in our minds. Because when we come to God and we pray, Father, 
What floods our minds is the gospel. What floods our minds and our hearts is that Christ has made me a child of God. That He has opened the ears of God to my prayers. That Christ has turned the concern and care of God towards me. That Christ's Spirit helps me in my weakness. And that Jesus has made it so that God wants to answer my prayer and that He will answer my prayers. If we truly believe these things, if we truly understood how the Gospel intersects with our prayer life, and we truly believe the Gospel, it would change and transform our prayer lives. No longer would we have to associate words like infrequent, boring, and burdensome with our prayer life. If we truly allowed the Gospel to fuel us. When we repent and believe the Gospel, we become children of God. This father-child relationship drastically changes God's view of us and reception of us and the way that we approach Him in prayer. And if we truly grasp the glory of our adoption into God's family, it would radically change and fuel our prayer lives. The supernatural element in the church without which it must fail comes only through praying. Church, if we long to see change in our personal lives and in the life of our church at large, if we truly want to see those in our community coming to know Jesus, if we want our children to embrace the Gospel with open arms, if we desire to have healthy marriages, if we want to live lives of holiness before God, if we want to see God move in our lives, we must be a people of prayer. This place must be a house of prayer. And now, because of God's Word, because of the Gospel, we have the sustaining motivation we need to be faithful in prayer. Let us then, with faith, embrace the Gospel Embrace what Jesus has done for us. Embrace our adoption into the family of God. And be changed, transformed, and fueled to go to God as our Heavenly Father in prayer, in and out of season. Let us pray. Our Father, thank You for the Gospel. Thank You for Jesus. Thank You that through faith in Him we can become Your children and that You condescend to us and call us Your Father that we might come to You more freely and more faithfully. Lord, I pray that You would not allow a single person in here to forget the Gospel when they come to You in prayer. That when they pray and they say, Father, that you would flood their hearts and their minds with the truth of the gospel. And that this would empower, this would motivate, this would fuel us 
to pray all the more. And Lord, as we become a people of prayer, a people of dependence upon you, would you move through us to transform those inside these walls and those outside of these walls. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, who makes it possible for us to come to God as our Father.